welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That's a great way to support the work that we do. It's a great way to have access to exclusive content that you're not going to find anywhere else and a wide range of perspectives. And I think that probably leads us into the conversation that we need to have today because of everything that's going on. Obviously, I don't need to explain to anybody the situation in the world, what's going on with Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, etc. Um, and the information space is so complicated right now, and it is so difficult to parse through what's real and what's not. And I think it's all the more important to have those avenues and those platforms and venues that we can trust for the kind of perspectives that we're looking for. Hopefully, Counterpunch can provide that. So please do go to the website, get a subscription to CP+. Uh, Really appreciate that. And for everybody who's already done that, thank you so much. Now, Turning to my guest today and the important conversation that we need to have, he's a returning guest. I think this is like the third or fourth time he's with us today. Friend of Counterpunch, friend of uh, anti-fascists all over the world. Jason Stanley is with us. He is a professor of philosophy at Yale. Uh, He is, of course, the author of, I don't know, Jason, maybe one of the most important books of the last few years, definitely, considering everything that's happened, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. I think it was 2018, if I remember correctly. Jason Stanley is on Twitter at Jason Intrator, I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. Jason Stanley, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thanks so much. And thank you, Eric and Counterpunch, for doing the work that you do. Thanks so much for that. So, Jason, look, I'm going to start just with the most obvious question. What are your thoughts on what's going on right now? We're recording on the evening of March 8th. Uh, it's International Women's Day, but we're not exactly celebrating these days. So just in general, you have obviously connections to Europe with your family, just as I do, to the Holocaust, et cetera. Everything that's going on in Russia, Ukraine right now, general thoughts. General thoughts. Classic fascism is... Uh, Ethno-nationalism linked to religion often uh, in, in, so in, uh, in, 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 a, in a, used in a way to justify colonialist, colonialist enterprise, characteristically, paradigmatically an imperial war. Uh, and what we're seeing is exactly that. We're seeing uh, Russian nationalists uh, led by Putin, who's, uh, I mean, we're seeing Pu- Putin who is, you know, the Russian nationalist, uh, engage in an aggressive imperialist war that is a kind of paradigmatic throwback to European fascism, together with the uh, Hitler-style 1939 propaganda that there's, uh, you know, that the war is supposedly justified by uh, by genocide of ethnic Russians. Uh, I mean, these are classic... I mean, not even pretending uh, Nazi tropes to justify colonial uh, invasion and war. I mean, minor differences here. I mean, the goal is to extinguish Ukrainian identity and claim that Ukraine is just a part of Russia and that every Ukrainian is, in fact, really just a Russian and the Ukrainian language doesn't exist, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all a fiction. That's a difference. From uh, from Germany and I guess the two people left alive who are like this is not fascism. Fascism is just something that happened in the past. Uh, might say uh, hang their hats on that, uh, but uh, no, this is uh, you know fascism 
is uh, is uh, you know paradigmatically uh, ethno nationalist, far right, masculinist, macho, anti LGBT, uh, anti feminist movement that uh, is led by a by a strong masculinist leader uh, who justifies imperialist war uh, and greater empire by national humiliation. Uh, and uh, and fictional claims of uh, of of aggrievement and declares that the Jews are behind a globalist conspiracy of Jews is behind liberal democracy uh, that has rotted people's uh, the rotted people's minds and left them in the words of Medvedeva's uh, newspaper piece description of. Um, of Zelensky, uh, corrupt and decadent, etc. So it's it's an almost classic paradigmatic case uh, of fascism with some hair splitting on you know how you justify the imperial war uh, here not to uh, not to kill Ukrainians, but I mean obviously there's a lot of killing Ukrainians, but to assimilate them to Russians and pretend their identity never existed in the first place. Indeed. And, you know, one of the interesting things I think about the discourse around what's going on is that there's so many different ways that you can analyze it. And I think a lot of people do get hung up on interpreting these political narratives, the sort of grand narratives, et cetera. And uh, maybe sometimes forget about some of our classical Marxist analysis as well. I mean, there are oligarchs on both sides of this war. There are resources that are be, that are in play. There are billions of dollars in control of uh, energy and all and, and infrastructure and Russian oligarchs who can't stand the fact that Ukrainian oligarchs took over the control of those resources and so forth. So there's also this other aspect to this war that gets obscured partially by the Kremlin's propaganda about Nazis and this is an ideological war and anti-fascist war, but also by sort of our Western coverage, which sees this as, you know, just a bully versus victim uh, situation when in fact it's a lot more complicated. So there are very powerful material interests involved as there are, of course, always in the Marxist analysis of things. But let's not forget Cedric Robinson's uh, critique of Marxists of Marxism in black in black Marxism, which is that the Marxist analysis forgets the power of nationalist ideology. Marxism, by reducing everything to materialism, Marx neglected Marx neglected or hoped that that rank national, ultra-nationalist fascism would not be an ideological force uh, in and of itself, both for and against, uh, and and nationalism is a force, I don't want to say that nationalism is a force, uh, you know, always and invariably uh, for, for fascist imperialism. It isn't. What we see with Ukrainian nationalism here is, uh, is you know the Maidan revolution was a civic nationalist revolution where uh, in which Ukrainians kind of mixed their identity in with liberal democracy. So this is something. This is something that nationalism can be an anti-imperialist force. Um, nationalism has been an anti-imperialist force. Uh, Fanon and on violence discusses this at length. Um, and you do see Ukrainian nationalism playing that anti-imperialist role here, 
Um, so it's not nationalism bad. Uh, you know, it, what we have is, uh, and, and I am pushing back against the Marxist analysis, Cedric Robinson style, because I think that I, you know, in the figure of Putin, you have someone who is, you know, quite taken with the, uh, with the, with the, with the ideological vision. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's working. Uh, I don't know how much it's working. Um, it seems like it was a mistake and I don't think the Russian public is going along. Um, but, you know, national, you know, ethno-nationalism, fascism, these can be divorced from their materialist roots. And they can have power both to motivate, as Cedric Robinson argued, black nationalism had power to motivate over and above uh, uh, materialist um, uh, materi- materialist grounding. And here I think we do see an example in, in Russian fascism, in P- Putin's fascism, um, of, you know, uh, the thing that Marxists always forget uh, or can forget. <laughs> That that uh, that these ideological formations have a power and a grip on the human imagination uh, in and of themselves. Indeed, I think that uh, what you're kind of alluding to is sort of the vulgar Marxist perspective, right, which sees everything right. as reducible exclusively to economics. And that certainly can be an issue at times. I guess all I was trying to say is that everyone wants to have a talking point. Everyone wants to have a perspective on what's going on. And uh, I think easy to forget that there are many levels of what's happening, right? That there is exactly. an ideological component, that there's an economic interest component, that there are competing interests, power blocks, etc. It's like everyone, it was just like with Syria or with any other, uh, you know, uh, conflict in recent years, right? Where online on Twitter, etc., everyone wants to reduce things down to like good guy and bad guy. Here's what the conflict's about when in fact, it's about a lot of different things. Oh, that's absolutely right. I was just pushing back because I get a lot of pressure from my Marxist friends and allies and enemies <laughs> uh, because I consider myself a Marxist of, of, of sorts. My book, How Propaganda Works, argues that economic inequality is incompatible with democracy. So without, you know, with large economic inequality, you have conditions that enable fascism. So I am at root a kind of du Boisian Marxist. Um, but, uh, but uh, and I think that the ideological thing is thrown to those PWR victims of inequality as a way to, uh, to goad them into action um, and have them act against their material interests. Um, but, uh, but I get a lot of grief because I do, my work emphasizes the ideology. It emphasizes the language. It emphasizes the symbols. And that's my expertise, of course, in philosophy of language and uh, and epistemology, you know, that ideological component. But as you say, you know, uh, the the economic base and the the idea, the ideology and the material base, they interact uh, in and you can and they're not separable from each other because ideology, as Althusser reminds us, is material <laughs> and involves practices, it involves it involves uh, economics, it involves, uh, you know, racism involves 
uh, redlining and all these economic policies. So ideology is material and Russian oligarchs are utterly central to what's going on. The material ba- Ukrainian oligarch, the material basis here needs to be investigated and explored and is part of what's going on. But I also think it's a moment where you see the force of ideology uh, because you have one person, autocratic leader in the case of Putin, who, uh, who clearly is very taken with the ideology. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because one of the aspects of this war that is so potent is uh, the weaponization of historical memory and historical narratives and the way in which that is used for the purposes of, well, actually, depending on where you're coming from, either side of this, right? Um, But can you talk a little bit about the weaponization of historical memory here? And then can you also tie that, if you could, back to your book, How Fascism Works, and why that is so critical to, well, historical fascism, whether or not people agree that Putin and Russia are fascist or not, sort of irrelevant? That's absolutely right. I, I mean, so the ideological component, <laughs> shall we? Uh, there was a great piece by Peter Beinhart, Beinhart in Jewish Currents uh, today. Uh, on on uh, justification for erasing a people, uh, and what uh, and he was talking about the overlaps in, between the Israeli justification for the eradication of the Palestinian people and the Russian justification for the eradic- eradication of of you of you, the, the Ukrainian people, and uh, and uh, with a difference being that Israel wants to say that. There are no distinctive. Both want to say there's no such thing as the is the Israeli right wants to say there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. They're just Arabs, uh, and the Russians want to say the the Russian nationalists want to say there's no such thing as the Ukrainian people. They're just Russians. So there's a difference. the The Russians want to say they're us. They're not different. Whereas the Israelis want to say many Israelis, the Israeli right wants to say the Palestinian people are them. They're not different. Um, but that difference aside, in both cases, you see this kind of, you, you see the goal. The goal is the eradication of a people and a nation and a history and a sovereignty. Um, and the the justification is, uh, is uh, you know, the, the historical claim supposed historical claim your country has to that land. Uh, so the in in the past, that was ours, dating back, you know, historically acts. Now, in both cases, uh, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, in both cases, you know, going back, you know, th- I mean, you know, Obviously, in the Palestinian case, there have been Palestinians living there for a long time. <laughs> there have been in, in in the Ukrainian case, it's all there's there's there was there is a distinct Ukrainian language. You know, uh, in both cases, it's an invented historical past, and in both cases, you appeal the the ideological work by this fictional narrative that this was always ours uh, is that your land is humiliated. It's not really its true self. Until it's incorporated that land that was rightfully historically yours, so uh, so in in so uh, it's very clear in the works of folks like Dugan Alexander Dugan that uh, that uh, Ukraine uh, and numerous Russian fascists that Ukraine has this very 
particular role. If Russia is ever to be whole, it must contain Ukraine. There's no historical justification for this. I mean, you know, it's, Ukraine is a sovereign nation, uh, a sovereign democratic nation. Uh, you know, what's correct here is that it's an existential threat threat to Putin and Putin's autocratic government because having a, you know, free and fair elections and replacement of leaders by elections in a country right next door is going to give your citizens ideas. Um, so it is a threat. Um, so he can use this narrative of uh, Russian humiliation uh, and the desire, the classic fascist narrative of the restoration of empire uh, to obliterate the threat, which is a, a democratic society that replaces leaders by elections. I want to I want to sort of fold that into a conversation that I think is sort of related to that. The weaponization of historical memory ties into the disinformation and misinformation that we're dealing with and trying to sort through. Um, I would say that this war that we're going through now is probably the most uh, it, it may be one of the most potent weapons out there right now, and that is disinformation and the way that it proliferates. And um, I want to talk about Nazis and historical legacy of Nazis as it relates to disinformation, because on the one hand, you know, I've been I've been sort of accused of being a hypocrite because in 2014, when that when the Maidan uprising happened, I was like, well, wait a second, there are Nazis there, right sectors for I, real, Azov battalions for real, all these things are real. And that's a big concern. My family comes from Odessa. My great grandfather was murdered in the Minsk ghetto. My great grand my great aunts were murdered in the uh in odessa etc so i have a lot of sort of personal connection to that and i was very i was always very sensitive to this idea of ukraine and nazis but here you have russia making the claim that this is essentially a nazi state not a normal state that has a far-right component to it that oftentimes becomes much too influential. Um, and so I want to talk about how this has been weaponized and the elements of disinformation and I guess also the effectiveness of rooting disinformation or propaganda in a lot of historical truth. Right. So great. So yeah, this is what I've been writing about. Um, and it's moving fast. People are reacting to the things that people like me and Tim Snyder have been writing and others. Um, and so the disinformation campaign gets more complex. And then, and then you know, so 2014, I was absolutely taken with the, uh, I was I was sure Eastern Europe must be Nazis. Uh, uh, they're, they're demanding a Ukrainian nation. All that, you know, oh, if an Eastern European country is demanding national sovereignty, they must be, you know, it, it's, it's reminiscent of the horrors that my family and yours encountered in Eastern Europe. Uh, so, you know, my mother was uh, was in a pole Eastern from Eastern Poland, born in 1940 on the march to Siberia, grew up in a Siberian labor camp, repatriated back to Poland and came to America at the age of eight as part of that mass refugee movement. But her family, uh, all of all eight of her aunts and uncles were murdered by either the Nazis or Polish neighbors. And so I have the same history with Poland, not with Ukraine, but Ukraine was particularly bad. Ukrainian nationalists were anti, many of them were deeply anti-Semitic, slaughtered Jews. Uh, a tremendous number of, of Ukrainian Jews were slaughtered in the Holocaust. So 
uh, I mean, a tremendous number of the Jews slaughtered in the Holocaust were in Ukraine, uh, in the Holocaust of bullets. Uh, so, uh, so that's right. So, not, uh, Putin is is relying on that. Uh, he's uh, he's and and I was completely taken with that. And and I, you know, when I went to Kiev in uh, in 2017, I uh, I went with that. Now I went believing that I was going to encounter a whole bunch of fascists, <laughs> and and I met uh, a wide variety of people. And I kept in contact with, I kept the fascist narrative in my own head um, as a leftist, as a, someone concerned about fascist, fascism. I was, and I, and I'm, I know there are Ukrainian blood and soil types. There are definitely Ukrainian blood and soil types. But for me, what was essential was the 2019 elections. When they got, when uh, I was telling everyone, because by the time of the 2019 elections, let's, let's go back to those elections. Um, I made some bad predictions because I was still, even though, I mean, when I went to U- Ukraine in 2017, I met a wide variety of people and my sense was uh, there's just a whole bunch of people and they're like into democracy. They don't want to have, their main thing was corruption. They're sick of corruption. Uh, you know, it unifies everyone from blood and soil nationalists to, you know, your, uh, you know, your gay bar attending uh, person to your synagogue attending person. They don't want corruption. And so it's not some grand thing. It's like a desire for a democratic country where you can throw out the corrupt people. So, you know, that made sense to me. Um, so uh, it was a kind of materialist thing. It wasn't some fancy thing. It was just like, okay, I'm going to be standing on the Maidan next to a Nazi or the Nazi, not next to a fascist or next to, uh, you know, with a fascist standing with a, a you know, someone wearing a, a rainbow flag uh, because none of them want corruption and they all want a system where they can replace the damn leader. <laughs> and that was very real. It was a very real sense that, and it wasn't something mysterious. Um, it, it made sense to me. It's great to be able to replace leaders. Uh, and so, uh, so, and corruption was a really big problem, you know, and continues to be a really big problem, but it's less of a problem when you can replace the leaders. So, uh, so then in 2019, I was like, there was, remember, Ukraine's been at war for eight years. So, uh, so, uh, so Ukraine was at war. And in 2019, I just said, look, Ukraine's at war. I bet the far right is going to sweep to power. Uh, instead, the far right got clobbered. So here I was with this narrative that you, Ukraine, you know, that fascism, you know, you know, as someone who studied fascism for a very long time and fascist politics for an extremely long time, I thought in wartime, you know, the at blood and soil nationalists are going to dominate. And so I bet people that they'd w- win 15 percent. I said, I said, tell me that the far right, you know, tell me that the far right in Ukraine won't win 15 percent when they're winning more than that in Germany. You know, in East East Germany, they're winning way more than that. They're the dominant party off day. So I'm like, tell me that they're gonna, you know, but they got clobbered in in 2019. They got 2% of the vote. Um, so those are facts. Those are indisputable, undeniable facts. Now, uh, and I got I had egg on my face in 2019. Now fast forward to 2022. So I'm out there pointing out, okay. You actually have a country where 
the far right went into elections and got clobbered. <laughs> and uh, and not because people are necessarily radically different or, you know, ropes Pierre is running things. I mean, it's not that. It's that people don't want corruption and people don't, people want, you know, people, people want a, a sort of normalist, normal Western European democracy, which makes sense. Um, so, so now, now the latest replies to that, the latest disinformation move, probably about 24 hours old, is, uh, oh, okay, the far right only won 2% because the far right embedded themselves among the liberal democratic centrist parties. So that's the new move. The new move is, is to say, oh, okay, the far right had to, had to hide. <laughs> because they weren't popular. So they embedded themselves into the centrist parties and they're really running the centrist parties. And then Putin comes in and Putin is essentially telling you the globalist Jew Jewish conspiracy is to embed far-right ethno-nationalists <laughs> into the liberal democratic parties. Makes no sense. <laughs> it makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> so... You know, the far right got shellacked in the 2019 elections. Sure, you can find me the occasional far right person who changed their views. You know, I used to be a very far left. I probably have moderated a great deal, um, uh, you know, since I was 18 or whatever. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so you're going to be able to find some figures who moved into the centrist parties. But... The fact that they got shellacked as a far right as far right parties means that the Ukrainian population isn't voting for far right parties, and they're kind of unique among world democracies in that regard. Well, one of the obvious responses to that is: Have you looked at uh, right wing Republicans that have been elected in this country? I mean, outright fascists operating in Congress. I mean, you kidding me? But anyway, we we we. I want to focus on one other piece of what you were talking about and how it relates to all of this. And that is that the Nazi narrative and the, and the sort of disinformation narrative is effective in one other way because it appeals to both the right and left, right? That, that an anti-fascist perspective is obviously going to appeal to a lot of, you know, terminally online leftists who can then push a sort of pro-Kremlin kind of narrative about Nazis. And simultaneously, it appeals to the far right who see this as a sort of a fight against, you know, Kolomoisky and Jewish oligarchs and Zelensky and these degenerate, you know, coke-sniffing Jewish mongrels or whatever, right? And so you have this kind of crafted propaganda that is very, very effective to, in Dugan's, in Dugan's terminology, to, to peel off the far right and far left and point them against the center, right? That's fourth political theory in Dugan's book. That's exactly right. You couldn't have said it better. I mean, and it appeals to Christian nationalist anti-Semitism, and especially of the Eastern European variety that says the Nazis' real goal was to destroy the Christian Slavs. That was their real goal. And the Jews have just like wormed their way in to make it about them. <laughs> and so the Nazis' real target was good Russian Christians. And the Jews have entirely obscured this because maybe really the Jews really were behind Nazism. So that's something you hear in Eastern, that's an Eastern European line. 
People can't understand that here. That part's aimed at Eastern Europe, but it's absolutely right. The the uh, the Nazi rhetoric has always been aimed at at uh, this. You know, the the uh, the Russian propaganda goes to the far right. I mean, Putin is the global leader, in effect, of the far right. He's funding them. He's uh, he's the the pr- pretty well acknowledged as that. Um, and uh, and conceives of himself as that, I think, uh, as the protector of Western Christian of Western Christianity against the decadent liberal decadence, the decadent liberal democracy, the LGBT agenda, and the Muslim invasion. <laughs> and so, uh, so this is so right. So the anti fascist the the anti the Nazi rhetoric is meant to bring in and legitimate the uh, the uh, in the case of Ukraine. Uh, it's it's meant also to draw in those of us with the history that you and I have. Um, so, you know, I speak as someone who was kind of firmly convinced, not firmly convinced, but, you know, I mean, uh, my colleague Marcy Shore's book on the Maidan, the Ukrainian Knights is, uh, uh, Knights is uh, uh, you know, I read it. I argued with her. <laughs> I was like, this can't possibly be right. What about the Nazis? You know, I thought all Eastern Europeans are Nazis or whatever. You know, I mean, I didn't think that. But, but you know, I had that view that, you know, you have this expression, the Maidan seemed anti-Russian. It seemed an expression of nationalism. And then there's a kind of simplistic way of thinking that nationalism is always, uh, especially it's given extra resonance in Ukraine when Ukrainian nationalist past was into a blood. There were blood and soil elements, and there are blood and soil elements that you can track now. But they're a tiny percentage of Ukrainians, and they could never win an election under that description. And this new new propaganda move, oh, they've hid themselves inside the centrist parties, is absurd. Because if they need to hide inside the centrist parties, then uh, they're not popular. One one thing I want to ask you to do, if you could, I mean, uh, as I as I've already mentioned a couple of times, I mean, how fascism works is obviously it's a it's a you know big selling book. It was a, a big deal um, when it came out, and it's something that a lot of us refer back to as events unfold, and we're like, look here, take a look at Jason's book, and where he talked about you know here, and so I would like you to, if you could, just talk through a little bit, especially for those people who might be listening who didn't read your book and aren't familiar with it. Um, the last time you were on the show, Jason, we talked about Trump and Trumpism and how it aligns with some of those key features of fascism that you talked about. Can you talk a little bit about Putin and Russia and how they reflect some of those key features that you talk about in the book? And just one piece of information that just happened to come across yesterday that was interesting. I think it was in the New York Times, but 60, 65 percent of Russians don't believe that they're at war, you know, and so I think it 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 kind of goes to some of the things that you were talking about in your book. But anyway, if you could. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's paradigmatic what we're facing, the ideology that's being presented. So chapter, so uh, how fascism works breaks fascist politics into 10 parts um, uh, and corresponding to the 10 chapters. So first, a mythic past. You say in the past, we were a great empire. Uh, we've been humiliated. We've been humiliated by giving people, giving minority groups rights, in other words. So in this case, you know, 
you know, allowing sovereign, previously sovereign nations that our empire had dominated and conquered, we gave them their, they have now become sovereign nations with Ukraine being a key example. So we've been humiliated. We've lost our empire. In the past, we were a great military empire. So Putin, you know, he's probably going back to the czarist, to the czarist Russia. Um, and and we've been humiliated by democracy, by liberal democracy. We've been humiliated by this idea that we have to give people equal cultural rights. And, and you know, and people who are, uh, and we have to return to this great military past. So that's the first thing, a mythic past. That's obviously at the very center of this, this mythic past where Russia contained, had, had a, Ukraine as its center, um, supposed center. Chapter two is about, is called propaganda. It's about fascist propaganda. And it says fascist propaganda characteristically involves calling others what you are. So it, it's, it's fascist propaganda is characteristically projection. So that's the particular feature of fascist propaganda. If you're a fascist, you call other, other people fascist. If you're a Nazi, you call other people Nazis. I don't need to explain why that's applicable here. Um, uh, three is anti-intellectualism, the attack on intellectuals, free thought. You say that, you say that you know, um, universities, journalism, the press, these are all the enemy. They've all been taken over by the globalists. Um, you know the we need to uh there there you know the the, the gender study the attack chapter three involves chapter three is about Russia Putin's Russia it's about the the Masha Gessen's work on the Russian attack on gender studies Russia pioneered the attack that we're seeing come to coming to fruition in the United States today with the attack on critical race theory the attack on 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 gay rights, on, you know, all the anti-CRT bills that we're seeing. That was pioneered in Russia, and then it moved to Hungary. So St. Petersburg, the European University of St. Petersburg, then uh, then Central European University in Budapest. These were, uh, you know, uh, uh, Russia attacked gender studies. as like, and, and of course you want to attack gender studies, because gender studies has the key to what's what's happening, which is these macho strongman leaders, as Ruth Ben Giat aptly analyzes in her book, Strongman. So this attack on universities, this attack on universities as an education, the attack on education systems, arguing that they're filled with propaganda, with that they're ideological indoctrination centers for liberalism, leftism, feminism, uh, minor, uh, they elevate minorities, the status of the dominant group. And what you say is education systems must only show people the glory of the nation. So that's chapter three. Obviously, Putin has, has laid the worldwide groundwork for this. Um, chapter four is called Unreality, uh, which is uh, the, uh, the construction, the conspiracy theories. Uh, in this In this case, we have you know, that Nazis have taken over, uh, that, that, that Nazi, that Jewish Nazis have taken over uh, Ukraine and are uh, bringing liberal democracy in the service of blood and soil nationalism. None of it, it doesn't make sense. As <laughs> it's like core incoherency, as many conspiracy theories are. But one fact about the conspiracy theory literature that jumps out is that 
um, conspiracy theorists, for instance, people who are more inclined to accept one version of the JFK assassin of a JFK assassination conspiracy theory, are also much more inclined to accept a totally contradictory version to the one that they accept first. So you take the ordinary person; they're like Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK. Someone who endorses a, a crazy conspiracy theory about JFK will be about the JFK assassination will be much more likely to also endorse a conspiracy theory that completely contradicts the one that they that they endorse uh, than someone who just believes the ordinary narrative. So this contradictory thinking that we see in the case of Putin, like it's both liberal democracy and ethno-nationalism, that's characteristic uh, of, of this kind of conspiracy theory thinking. So chapter four is unreality, the centrality of conspiracy theories. That's this incoherent conspiracy theory of liberal democracy allying with ethno-nationalism. Uh, chapter five, hierarchy. One group uh, is, is great. One group's identity is great. And another, you know, and, and it's being, and another group being granted equal status is an existential threat to your identity. So in this case, Russian identity, Ukrainians are saying they're a distinct nation with a distinct culture and a distinct language. And the Russians are, and Russian nationalism says, no, no, you're just Russian. Um, so, and you, your expression of Ukrainianism, of being U Ukrainian is an existential threat to us. So that's hierarchy. Chapter six is called the six pillars of victimhood, the dom dominant group victimhood. Nobody whines more than white people, than sort of white people talking about supposed anti-white racism. I mean, it is the worst whining imaginable, right? Oh, we're such victims. We have to pass laws about our, you know, the first time we have anti-racism laws or anti-white racism laws, uh, you know, supposed to protect us from anti-white racism. So this is what's going on in Russia. We have the, you know, the, dom the Russians have been humiliated. They're humiliated by the very existence of Ukraine as a special, as a, as a distinct nation. Um, well, they're victims. Uh, chapter, um, um, chapter seven, uh, I'm going to have to reach for it now. Uh, here's the Hungarian translation. <laughs> Let's see if I, uh, if I can, uh, law and order, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, there's just anarchy, you know, it's, it's, it's all corruption, anarchy, you know, there's, it's completely corrupt because you've let the minority, you know, you've let this narrative to take over. It's not really a, uh, uh, that, you know, the people were attacking the, the enemy. They're, they're just completely corrupt. This is uh, what Medyeva said about, um, about Zelensky, that he's corrupt, that, that it's completely corrupt. Ukraine is corrupt, not as corrupt as Russia, but you know, that's why the people of Ukraine want democracy <laughs> because they, it's a weapon against corruption. So Putin is, so you say they're corrupt, they need law and order, we're gonna bring law and order to them, but we're gonna bring fascist law and order, which is always more corrupt than anything else. Um, so law and order, you tar, the enemy is corrupt. So Trump does this with, city with uh with to justify the elections so the big lie of the stolen election he says you know the minority cities with large minority populations are corrupt their elections are corrupt so that's what
Putin is saying. That's what this saying. Ukraine is corrupt. It's not a real democracy. No democracy is real. And no democracy is law and order. They're all corrupt. So, you know, Ukraine is corrupt. You know, I mean, Ukraine has corruption, of course. That's why they want democracy. Democracy is anti-corruption. Um, so uh, chapter eight is sexual anxiety. I don't need to talk about this feature of in a uh, in a uh, country like Russia that vilifies LGBT. Uh, I mean, so sexual anxiety is like, oh, it's a threat to our manhood. Um, you know, the uh, we've got so Ukraine uh, because it's a democracy uh, has LGBT rights. Uh, uh, gay uh, gay men and lesbian women, LGBT the LGBT community is allowed to live and exist, uh, unlike increasingly in the United States, and, uh, and, uh, and express their views uh, fully. Uh, in fact, in 2017, I had Ukrainian blood and soil nationalists said, saying, I have no problem with that. I have a problem with, uh, you know, uh, not being able to speak Ukrainian. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so, Sexual anxiety is this, you know, your masculinity is being threatened by gay rights, by feminism. Russia pioneered this. Russia is, didn't pioneer it, but Russia is the world leader in this, uh, in, in persecution of the LGBT community. Um, so uh, is among the world leaders and certainly among uh, the largest nations. Uh, uh, but, I mean, there are many, let's be honest, uh, the LGBT community is a is incredibly persecuted in the world today, but Russia has really brought it to another level. Um, chapter nine, Sodom and Gomorrah, about how like the true people are the, the the rural country people with the real values, and in the cities there's massive corruption. Uh, so you see this very strongly in in the United States, where you know you, so, you associate the cities with minorities. Uh, uh, LGBT. Uh, so Russia clearly, you know, is thinking the clear part of the propaganda. We're not really seeing this in the West, but, you know, Kiev and, you know, is represented as a place of corruption and decadence. Um, then finally, chapter 10, Abed Mahtai, uh, like that, uh, that, you know, hardworking, honest people, uh, you know, are being shafted and it's bankers and globalists who are, who are, uh, you know, just profiting off the genuine people. So Putin is using, that's, that's less clear here, but Putin is clearly trying to insinuate that some sort of globalist, uh, you know, cosmopolitan international is behind Ukrainian democracy. Absolutely. Jason, we're almost out of time. I promised I would get you out of here as quickly as I could and get you back to uh, other things that you need to do. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Jewish Nazi conspiracy here, because I think it is very interesting. And I do think that on the one hand, it would seem to strike us sort of on, on its face as incoherent. But in another way, it is actually extremely coherent, because in fact, one of the sort of underlying principles of Russian imperial revanchism is the idea that Bolshevism, Bolsheviks, you know, Jews, Bolsheviks, Lenin created the time bomb of Ukraine. 
he foisted Ukraine onto the Russian empire, right? It was those dastardly Bolsheviks who created Ukraine because of this silly notion that they had that maybe the empire wasn't good and people should have self-determination. So Putin says that, that, and it was an extremely anti-communist speech he gave on one day before the invasion, right? Where he basically lays it at the feet of Lenin and the Bolsheviks and says, they created this mess for us and I'm here to clean it up. And the translation of that means, I don't believe that Ukraine should exist. Right. Couldn't be more direct. So absolutely, Ukraine is a Jewish plot. Um, you know, in, in Putin's in Putin's ideological framework. Like the very idea that Ukraine is independent is supposedly a Jewish plot, a Bolshevik plot. It, I mean, it's all sort of magical nonsense as these ideological constructs are. Um, but it's a real error not to think that magical constructs can have real material impact. To me, that's a very strong lesson of history that ideas matter. I'm often ridiculed for that as naive, that the only movers are material forces. But it's false. Like these, these, you know, this I so definitely this idea that, you know, Jewish Bolshevism. I mean, this is the Nazi idea. This is why what we face is Russian fascism. Uh, Judeo-Bolshevism is responsible, supposedly for the is supposedly responsible for the supposed fiction of Ukrainian identity. And it's rooted in it's it's tied up with the Russian uh, Orthodox Church, which is very close to the government, but and historically close to the Czar. It's tied to the protocols of the Elders of Zion, the history of all of that, which it's comes out of Russian intelligence. Uh, this comes from St. Petersburg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in any event, um, just the last thing I wanna I wanna just uh, ask you before we go is uh, for any any words of advice that you would give to people who are listening, who are just watching all of this unfold and trying to understand it and trying to parse through the ideas and feeling lost or confused or overwhelmed by information. Any advice that you would have for them? Uh, so. Everyone's going to get something wrong. The Ukrainians are getting better and better at propaganda. Propaganda is a uh, a mechanism that is used in war and every side uses. There's going to be feel-good stories about Ukraine. There's no reason to say the feel-good stories about Ukraine. There's no reason to like jump up and down. These are false. There's going to be some false feel-good stories about Ukraine. Um, I think it is a pretty clear, good... I mean, it's not really, you know... You, Here's advice. The future is not fixed. The future is a result of the attitudes and decisions we make in the present. There's no fixed reality of the future. Paulo Freire emphasizes to us that this is, you know, this is the purpose of education to teach. There's no fixed reality. If you want to Ukraine to be if you want democracy to thrive, if you want Ukraine to come into being the democratic nation that it it really nascently is, uh, and uh, then then you know uh, recognize that uh, there there's messiness, there's complexity to reality, uh, but you know uh, the future's not fixed, and so uh, you know we're all going to get things wrong. We're going to believe things in the heat and fog of war that uh, that uh, that are not true, that are meant for various various purposes. Uh, don't double down on 
uh, when you're when you get something wrong, be like, okay, I got that wrong, but you know, it is wartime. Uh, if you when people double down, then they become when people are like, I saw this a lot with Trump when people are like, no, Trump's just another ordinary politician. He's Jimmy Carter or whatever. He's just like he's going to go away. There's no. There's not going to be any Trumpism. He's not going to create a movement. He's that's silly to take him seriously. And then people double down on it. And then the mistakes mounted because they felt committed to that line. So we're all going to get stuff wrong. Admit when you get stuff wrong. Um, you know, uh, Ukraine's making a stand against global fascism. Some fascists are going to be in that mix, uh, you know, convert them to the other side. Uh the future is not fixed and our behaviors and actions right now uh, will create the future uh, that is to come. And that's really the advice I have. Thank you so much for that. Jason Stanley is professor of philosophy at Yale University. He is the author of a number of books, most important for all of us, of course, How Fascism Works. Get yourself a copy of that. Make sure you give it to young people in your life, others who might benefit from understanding all of that. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jason Intrator. That's I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. Jason Stanley, thanks so much for coming back to Counterpunch and chatting with us. Thanks so much, Eric. Great discussion. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Go to Counterpunch Plus, get that subscription, and we will talk again next week.